We are um, in the middle of a Genesis series, and I shouldn't say in the middle of. For those of you who've been with us, I think we've been almost over a year or close to a year in the book of Genesis, and there's a reason for that because there's a lot well, of... Well, we started like August. Do we start in August? Yeah. Okay, so it's, so almost, it's almost been a year. It's not going to take us a whole year to get through every book. No, no. No. Like Obadiah and... Next year, we'll do Philemon. It'll be done. That's right. Jude. Yeah. <laughs> Jude, Jude and Philemon over the next right. 10 years, yes. <laughs> and there's a reason for that is because we're not just telling you opinions about Christian living from the book of Genesis. We've actually been doing some hard work in digging into the history, the language, the culture, and trying to draw out what was God doing when he was writing this story, what was God doing in the people? And so we've taken some time to really pause for a moment and go through really key snippets in the book of Genesis that sometimes you either gloss over or you can't see because of the English. And so that's why it's been um, taking us a little bit of time. And we've now come through, if you've missed the last two weeks, we've come through some um, indiscretionary, challenging, dysfunctional, oh my gosh, what is that doing in the Bible kind of stories. Um, and that's been chapter 34 through 35, 36. And we at Spark try not to gloss over those. Those are real stories. They're in the, they're in the book. If you're going to carry around your Bible, you should read those passages as well. And um, so we've been covering that. And now we've come to the story of Joseph. And believe it or not, the dysfunction continues. It's shocking, <laughs> really, yeah. Because the way I think we've all been taught the Bible, we've been taught these sort of highlights in Sunday school, and we've also been taught, you know, sort of um, quick little snapshot phrases or, or kicky rhymes or three points that are also alliterated, you know, on the way back, you know, the three this or the three that of, of this particular person's life. So when we look at the story of Joseph, we often hear like Joseph the dreamer and here are the things we can learn from Joseph and Joseph's faithful and Joseph does all these things. And yes, um, there's a lot of truth there. I think one of the things that we try to do at Spark is try to help all of us read the Bible. This is our story. We want you to know everything about this story. We don't feel like we should have any special language or special information as a result of our education or anything else. We feel like all the information that we've learned studying and Israel studying here should be information we all have. And a long time ago, just really quick in Christian history, um, when Rome fell, literacy fell. People couldn't read the Bible anymore. They didn't read the text. And sermons in churches went from like an hour plus, I know how exhausting, to um, 15 minutes, 10 minutes, because people didn't know how to read. They didn't know how to write. They didn't know how to sit and listen. And most of the sermons in the churches became very focused only on the New Testament stories and not the Hebrew scriptures, because a lot of people didn't know how to read Hebrew and, and they didn't have access to those texts. But as we all now have, 16,000 versions of the Bible at our fingertips on every smartphone and everything else. In some ways, we're almost just as biblically illiterate. We have it all, but we don't always know what to do with it or how to read it. And so we want to read it together today in community and give you the opportunity to ask some questions and wrestle with this as we go through the Joseph story. I think particularly because the Joseph story is um, so 
characterized by like cartoons and technicolor dream coats and um, veggie tails and everything else, right? He's got that really sharp looking coat, you know, and we get to see that and all those different things. And it's a fun story to tell with to kids because, you know, they like colors. So we just immediately jump. But actually, Joseph's story is a pretty difficult story. Well, it also kind of matches into a modern American ideal of a dream coming true. Yeah. So if there is a story of a person in the Bible who has a dream that comes true hey grab onto that and maybe your dreams yes your dreams can come true too it can happen to you yeah yeah all those pithy oprah things right (laughs) you know the the things we say that that pastors maybe sometimes feel the pressure to say because society says um Fortunately or unfortunately, we don't feel that pressure. So we're going to tell you um, <laughs> that uh, the title of today's sermon is Double Trouble. <laughs> and, um, and we're going to just share a little bit about the story of Joseph. So you all have Bibles, hopefully, around you or in front of you or on your PDA and smartphone or whatever it is. And uh, we don't mind if you use your phone. It's, it's fine with us. It, you can pretend you're reading the Bible while you text somebody about how you don't like the sermon. That's fine. We won't know. Jesus knows. <laughs> But, but we won't know. So. And Google. Yeah. <laughs> and the NSA. Right. So. The NSA and Jesus both know. But your, your pastors don't know. So in Genesis chapter 37, then, we're going to get started here as we read through a little bit of our story. Now, last week, Kevin highlighted for you guys the dysfunction of our family stories. Yes? And uh, hopefully he made us all feel a little bit more normal. A lot of times when we read through the Bible, we read through the Bible looking for superheroes. You know, big Bible heroes that all they're missing is a cape. No capes. No capes um, if you've seen The Incredibles. And if you haven't, it's incredible and you should. Um, so all of these uh, storylines, though, the, these one-liners of, you know, Reuben doing something inappropriate with his father's, you know, person that he, should he even have that. And all of these other kind of conflicted stories. Well, Joseph, we get to Joseph and we're kind of like, phew, finally, a good story. So uh, let's see if that's true. Um, Genesis chapter 37, verse 1. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed in the land of Canaan. Now, just a quick note there. The chapter before has told us that Esau, Esau, who is not the people of the covenant, his people, they are not the ones that God has made the covenant with, right? He made it with Isaac, not Esau. Uh, with Jacob, not Esau. And he made it with Isaac, not Ishmael, right? God, the covenantal line comes through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Esau has his land done. He's in the land already. He's ruling. He has a sort of kingship and authority. He's there already. All of that's set up. Esau's good. But Jacob and his family, the family of the covenant, they're just now settling into the land. And this is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers and sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpha, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now we're going to do a quick little uh, exercise. Alongside here, Kevin is going to put up on the top um, things I would need to go to therapy for. Okay? So if this were your family story, anytime you hear something in the story coming up that you're like, I would need deep therapy to survive that event, we're going to just put a little check mark there. Okay? And we're just going to count how many times there's a therapy issue. So I'm just going to highlight one. Joseph is the spy on his brothers. 
right? So he goes out, and every time he goes out, he goes back and tattles to dad about how the brothers are doing. So is this good or not good? It's sort of a sign generally that something's not great. Either the, it's a sign maybe of the brothers misbehaving, but it's also a sign of Joseph not how, somehow feeling in line with the brothers, right? Isn't there like a sibling honor code here? Yes, right? Thank you, other sibling and sister. I used to feel the same way with my sister growing up. My sister and I would get in a conflict, and we'd be separated to two rooms. One said, that's it, you know, separate corners, go to your rooms. I'd go to my room, she'd go to her room. My sister would sneak over into my room. Now, she's not allowed. She's supposed to stay in her room. We both are on timeout. And she'd sneak over, and she'd go, pss, 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 and start telling me, you know, her side of the argument. I was so interested in her side of the argument because I was sure that I was right, that I would let her do that. And I thought, like sibling code, you're breaking the rule, but I'm not tattling on you, right? As soon as I would come up with my good retort, I would sneak over to her room, crack open the door. She'd go, Mom, Danielle's out of her room. And I'm like, oh, like I could never get her back. I could never explain. And I was always so interested in what she had to say that I never called out first. So yeah, come on, sibling code of ethics. There should be no tattling. I want to hear, now I let you talk, you let me talk. This is what happened. So we've got a problem here. Now, verse three. Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Okay, we got a problem. Uh, Because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. So um, you've decided to love your son more than any others, and you've decided to dress him differently than anyone else. Excellent job, Dad. Um, Good. I'm sure that won't cause any trouble amongst your sons for for whom one is tattling constantly. Uh, When his brothers saw that, Their father loved him more than any of them. They hated him and could not speak a kind word to them, to him. And in the Hebrew, it says they could not speak a word of peace to him. Not one word of peace, not one word of shalom could they speak, and they hated him. So we've got some problems, right? Who needs therapy? Dad, for sure. Dad needs therapy because he's got a favorite. Does Joseph need therapy? Yes. Okay, he might be coming out good right now where he's the favorite, but that's not a good thing. And what about the brothers? They hate him, right? Okay, and then Joseph has a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. So this is our second hate. And he said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose, stood upright while all of your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. (laughs) And his brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Now that's the third time that the text tells us that they hated Joseph. So it's like they hated him. They really hated him. They really, really, really hated him. Right? That's the inference there with a third repetition in just a couple verses. And then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. And when he told his father as well and his bro- as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. Really quick stop. What happened in Shechem two chapters ago? The thing that shall not be done with Dina, right? With the daughter. Joseph's only 17. So that event and this event are close together. Dina and Joseph are close in age. So recently, all of those brothers have gone and put to the sword 
under a lot of deception, that community, and now they're back in that area. Sort of like all bad things happen at Shechem. And so now we've got a father saying, why don't you go back to that area for which I am a stench to the people? Go back and see how your brothers who hate you three times are doing. All right, we've got some issues again, okay? And Joseph goes, so he said to him, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. So Jacob must like this whole tattling thing. And he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They've moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers, found them near Dothan, but they saw him in the distance. And before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him, and then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. Do we have some more therapy going on there? Yeah, if, if you have never, ever threatened to actually kill a sibling, you're doing better than Joseph's family. All right, just so you know, you're better than the patriarchal family. Okay, by the way, just a quick note, the word there for dreamer in the Hebrew is ba'al ha-hamalot, ha-halomot, halomot, halom is dream, halomot is plural, and ba'al means master, we often say baal, um, it's, it's like he's the master of the dreams, or he is somehow in charge of the dreams, so they're like, hey, look, here comes that dream master, and we'll see what comes of him. And when they say kill him, it's the same word that Cain uses for Abel. So we're back with brother against brother. We're back with fratricide right at the very beginning. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. And Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. Now, remember what Reuben did in that last line, last chapter? He slept with somebody that belonged to his father. And now he's already kind of lost his firstborn status, but maybe here he's trying to get back some favor with dad. We don't know exactly. Maybe he loves his brother. Maybe he doesn't. But in whatever event, Reuben's trying to sort of take some leadership at this point. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing. Which, again, Joseph, why show up with the robe, really? It's like walking into a bad place, a bad alley with all your bling on, right? Like you're not going to go in and say, look at me and start pulling out your wads of cash. So there's something going on with Joseph that's not quite okay. Um, They took him and threw him into the cistern, and the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. Now, they want to tell you that because most cisterns held water. That's why you would dig a cistern, so there would be water in it. So they're saying they didn't drown him. They didn't throw him into a place with smooth walls that he couldn't climb out of, but they threw him into a dry cistern. As they sat down to eat their meal, because that's what you do after you strip your brother and toss him into a pit, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, and their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hand on him. After all, he's our brother, our own flesh and blood, and the brothers agreed. Now, notice here that Judah's argument isn't, you know what, you guys? I don't think we're supposed to kill our brother. His argument is, I don't think we have anything to gain here. We might as well, you know, just sell him into slavery. Because that's better, right? Because we might as well just allow his death to come at the hands of somebody else other than us. 
And this idea of blood crying, cover up his blood, it'd be the blood crying out from the ground. Like this is something that God's going to take account for. And it's a calling back to that, that your brother's blood cries out to the ground from the Cain and Abel story. Now when the Midianite merchants, and if you're paying attention, we just called them Ishmaelites and Midianites. Um, but that's because the Bible's going to conflate those two terms. And Ishmaelite might just mean sort of nomadic trader. So we've got the area of Midian and the Ishmaelites. When the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. And when Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. So apparently he wasn't at the dinner. We don't really know what happened to him. And he went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't here. In Hebrew, it says, the boy is no more. Where can I turn now? And then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Jacob tore his clothes, a sign of mourning, put on sackcloth and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. And so his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph to, in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Now we're going to stop our Joseph story right there and we'll pick up the rest of it in the coming weeks. Uh, but for those of you who remember the Joseph story, he's going to get sold into Egypt He's going to be a slave, essentially, in Potiphar's house. Um, she's going, Potiphar's wife is going to try to uh, become intimate with him. And he's going to flee. And then he's going to get thrown into prison. And he's going to eventually get out of prison. And then he will become a leader in Egypt. And at the very end, and it's the end of this, that all of this is done for the saving of many lives. So one of the first things we want to point out it's just, if your family is less dysfunctional than this, you could have been a hero in the Bible. Because Joseph is a hero in the Bible. And Joseph's family are heroes in the Bible. And we're just noting here that if you have a story in your past, you have a story, a dysfunctional moment where somebody's done something deeply painful for, to you. Maybe they haven't tried to kill you or sell you into slavery, but something deeply painful... I want you to know that at every single point here, God used these events as the way to start to put a turn of redemption in. There's double trouble going on in the Joseph story, but there's double redemption happening too. One of the things that's fascinating in this chapter turn is if you read carefully Genesis 1 through 36, those chapters... Um, you will see times when God shows up, speaks directly to Abraham, speaks directly to Isaac. Um, Those are called, in theological terms, theophanies. It's when God appears, and there's this grand moment. And, you know, one of the comments that I get frequently is, why doesn't God show up today in the same way? You read these stories, and why, you know, I just want, if God could just show up in the same way that I read in the Bible. The problem with that is what happens here with the Joseph story is those theophanies, the times when God shows up in that way, stops. And so all of this that we're now telling, this new story, and we're going to see why Danielle uh, titled this Double Trouble, is you're starting to see some similar patterns of dysfunction, similar ways in which God is redeeming, similar, similar ways in which God's call and commission upon his people is being pushed out into this world, specifically now through Egypt. 
but without the theophanies, without the God appearing, speaking directly to. Now, God is definitely working in and through Joseph. That's very clear. But the ways in which God shows up in the grand, light, big experience ways have now ceased. And so I think that's helpful for us to understand. For those of us who have gone through a a Christian experience and expected God to show up in the way that we see in the Bible, well, guess what? He does show up in the way that we see in the Bible, even in chapters 37 through 50, where he doesn't. He shows up through the dreams. He shows up through the attitude and the actions and the integrity of Joseph. Um, He shows up in the movement of Pharaoh and even some of his decisions. And that's a very marked shift. And he shows up in the sin. He takes the moments of sin. He shows up in this sin of the brothers, this jealousy towards their brother, this desire, this deep hatred. God shows up and says, that hatred I'll turn for good. That hatred I'll take and I'll use a redemptive turn and start my redemption plan into motion. Because if you remember, back in Genesis 15, God tells Abraham in one of those theophanies, my people, your people will have to descend into Egypt and they will be enslaved there for 400 years, but I will pull them out. Now it's interesting again that, that Esau and his line is already in the land. They've been given land by God. They are ruling in that land. They're not going to be taken into Egypt in slavery for 400 years. How many right now would be like, can I be on Esau's side, right? And you've probably never thought that before. But God's covenant, God's blessings, almost always equal hard work. They almost always equal testing. They almost always equal tribulation. They almost always equal trial. And Jesus tells us this. He says, be prepared. You're going to be persecuted because you love me. Be prepared. You're going to be called before the authorities. Be prepared. All of these things are going to happen. There is no make Jesus your choice. You'll drive a Rolls Royce. It doesn't happen. Instead, it's if you are my covenant people, there will be special responsibilities that you have and a special calling that you have to come into this world. And it's not going to be easy. It's going to be really hard. It will in some ways be double the trouble. But it will be good. It will turn for good. And in these beautiful moments, God shows up between the lines in Joseph's story. And in these moments, God is coming in and saying, ah, that's dysfunction. Let me turn that for redemption. That's crazy and broken. Let me turn that for my purposes. That's ridiculous. Let me turn that so that Joseph will end up eventually being in leadership in Egypt for the saving of many lives. And Joseph himself says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Now, that's not to say that God is causing the brothers to do this. I think we would both agree that God is the co-author of our stories. He gives us free will. We have the freedom to sin or not to sin. We have the freedom to take responsibility or not to take responsibility. And God can make it so that his people go down to Egypt and find rescue there, whether or not Joseph gets sold into slavery by his stinky brothers, right? I mean, two of the other patriarchs have already gone down to Egypt and come back out. This is not a new story. Egypt is a place where you go when there's famine in the land because the Nile waters the land beautifully there and you can survive. But God is taking the dysfunction and saying, I'm going to redemptively turn this. This is why you want to be the people of God because everybody's dysfunctional. And if somebody isn't here, you should leave because we don't like you because we're all really dysfunctional. 
We'll just be bitter that your family's got it all together, okay? And I say that with family members in the room, not just the one I'm married to. We are all dysfunctional. We all have that in our story. And God shows up. If you are the people of God, if you are part of that covenant, God shows up and says, let me take that moment and turn it for my redemptive good. So in a little bit, we're going to ask you to write down what that moment has been in your life, that moment of deep pain. So just start thinking about that. We're going to have you do, we're going to hopefully have God do something with we're that. We're going to do some therapy today. We're going to do some therapy. We're going, to, we're going to assign Joseph and his family to therapy, and then we're also going to do some therapy ourselves. Before we do, there's a one other layer that I'd like to point out that I think is fascinating with this Joseph story, which is a, which is a great um, kind of context and location. He, they're going to this place called Egypt. Now you look at this picture, and I chose this picture intentionally, because those pyramids that, were, that are there and were there during the time of this story. Long before Abraham. Even before Abraham. Yeah. Now think about that for a second. We read this Bible that we have here, and we think that the entirety of world history is happening through the pages of Genesis to Revelation. But the reality is what's happening in this land, in this location is going on simultaneously. And we don't get to hear the story of the multiple dynasties and the amazing civilizations and the advancements that's happening down here in Egypt as well as all over the world. And so as we think about dysfunction and as we think about the story that is being told, we're also taking into consideration that our family story, what we talked about last week and that we're talking about this week, is also within the context of a much larger story and picture that is all around us. And it's very easy for us to get really myopic and really centered on what God is doing right here, right now, just with me, my time, my spiritual journey. But I think it's important to understand that when these dysfunctions happen and when the story is being told and then when God gives the commission that you are to go out into the the entire world, there is an entire world waiting for what it is that we have gone through, what it is that we have brought, what it is that we have experienced, and how God has redeemed our dysfunctions, used our dysfunctions, and then we need to go into this world to show that world what that is and how that works out. And it's kind of astounding and amazing to me to think actually about world history in the context of the biblical story, that this was going on all the while that God was calling Abraham, all the while that God was wrestling with uh, Jacob, all the while while this, these crazy things are happening in this little strip of land called Israel. And, and I just note that the saving of many lives isn't just the lives of God's people, right? It's the saving of all the lives that are in Egypt. Joseph is going to be an instrument for all of that. God is at work in that larger story. Now, as we look back, as Kevin was mentioning, in the Joseph story, there is no theophany. There's no altar building. There's no giant vision. Remember the person that had one of the most amazing visions, Jacob, the father in this story who's so crazy, who's not doing it right, who didn't stick up for his daughter, who was attacked, who didn't take revenge for that, who didn't, who didn't set his sons right, who now has a favorite, all of these things. Jacob is the one that had the theophanies. Jacob's the one that saw the ladder. Jacob's the one that built the altar and said, God is in this place and I did not know it. Jacob's the one that heard God say these promises. And Jacob is the one that continues to act with such dysfunction. Like all of us. This is the story of, of us. Of you and I. Yeah. And Jacob is named now as one of the founding fathers of our faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is essentially Israel. 
and he becomes Israel. If you'll even notice in this story, in the Joseph story, the author uses and flips back his name back and forth, Jacob slash Israel, Jacob slash Israel. This is the person that becomes the namesake for the entire people of God. And if anyone previously has said to you, oh, if I only could have that one moment with God, like then I'd believe or then my life would be together or then you just take him to the Jacob story and say, look it. Because what we'd like to point out now is the doubling in this story that's really fascinating. So remember the Jacob and Esau story? Who is the favorite of Rebekah? Jacob. And who is the favorite of Isaac? Esau. And how'd that work out? Not so great. So Jacob was a favorite, and now he has a favorite. Remember, Jacob stayed in the tents back with his mom while Esau went out. Notice that Joseph is back in the tents with his dad while the other brothers are out. There's this doubling again. There's animosity between the brothers and the Jacob story, and there's animosity between the brothers that are the sons of Jacob. Joseph has two dreams. Pharaoh will have two dreams. The chief butler and the chief baker will both dream similar dreams, but not quite. Joseph will be flung twice, once into the cistern and once into the prison of Pharaoh's house. Joseph will be, uh, make a trip down to Egypt. The brothers will make a trip down to Egypt. And at each time the brothers take these two trips down to Egypt, there will be a brother at risk for both. As Joseph goes down with traitors, the brothers will go down with their goods as well. Jacob deceived Isaac with what? Do you remember when he deceives his father? How did he deceive him? With Esau's garment and goat skin, goat fur. How is Jacob himself then deceived by his own sons? With a garment and with goat. There's this doubling that's going through this story. And what I think that shows us is that we pass our dysfunctions along to our kids, right? The next generation to come after us, it doesn't always have it together. We pass this stuff along. But here's the good news. God still works. He's not waiting for people to get it together so that all of a sudden he can start a redemption plan that will save the entire world. None of these people had it together, and they're the ones through whom the covenant came. This is good news. And they didn't, like Joseph did not get this theophany, this beautiful, incredible vision, but he knows and gives God credit for all of the turns in his life. He knows and gives God credit. He says, God is the only one that can interpret dreams, so I'll interpret that right now, which is interesting because Egypt is really known for being able to interpret these dreams. God is co-authoring this story with free will and with the choices for sin and the choices for freedom and to obey. No matter what those choices are, God is still authoring the story. He's still between the lines. Now, that's not to say that therapy wouldn't have been highly valuable for this family. Amen? We all need therapy. We all need therapy. We're big fans. Get every tool that's out there to not pass this stuff along to your loved ones, to not hurt the people that are closest to you, right? And know that no matter what, in spite of all of it, God is at work. And God says, ah, there's double trouble there. That's double chance for redemption. That's double chance for a turn of my effort to make it good. This is the good news of being the people of God. God wants to step into our places of deep pain and deep hurt and deep brokenness and say, do you really want to be defined by that for the rest of your life? Joseph, do you want to be defined only as the guy that was thrown into a pit for the rest of your life? He didn't wander around Egypt going, man, you know, my brothers just stink. 
He didn't wander around constantly identified by the worst thing that had ever happened in his life. Instead, he said, I want to be identified by the turn. I want to be identified by this moment that God has stepped in and said, I'm turning this for good. And that's what he chose to have as his moment of identity. Don't miss. That was really good. You should say it again then. (laughs) It's really (laughs) incredible. The reason why this Joseph story, I think, is so so resonates with our souls because I think this resonates with our souls. We, we recognize this, or at least we can put some sort of parallels to that. But then the second thing is there's something within us that cries out to say, but this shall not continue or be repeated. There's something within us that wants to be redeemed, wants to see a different pattern, wants to see a different life, wants to see something in our lineage and our heritage and and the legacies that are being passed on to us and that we're passing on shift change be redeemed and i really actually love that so much that joseph did not go into egypt just hanging on to this one thing and this is the great verse that we're going to get to eventually in, in chapter 50 verse 20 you meant it for evil and you know, I'm really ticked off about that. You know, can we talk about how you guys were really screwed up and how you threw me in the pit? Can we rehash that through again? I really want you to feel how bad that was, you know. And he used I feel statements as he said exactly. it. Exactly. I feel hurt. I feel hurt. I don't feel so right. much appreciated by being thrown into a pit. I felt when no. you, you meant it right. for evil. But the shift in the redemptive turn is, but God meant this for good. And this is going to be, I think, one of the running themes through the rest of our Genesis story, and especially as we get to the end. There's a lot of things in this life that are being meant for evil or are being meant for dysfunction or are being meant for shame or are being meant to cause further um, disruption in our lives. We sometimes actually mean it for evil. We actually mean that the people in our lives are going to suffer as a result of, you know, I'm going to do this thing because they really need to learn a lesson. But even though we may mean it for that, God is going to intend all of these dysfunctions, all of this, for good. He will bring it for good. He'll find that tiny redeeming thing in the midst of it and bring it for good. This is is incredible. This makes me love God. Because I feel so out of control with the dysfunction, and I feel like if I can trust him with my sin then I can trust him to make it good. I can trust him with the worst part of myself, with the most broken part, with the worst thing I've ever done. And I can say, God, even that, would you turn that for good? Somehow do that for good. I just want to point out, Joseph didn't know that was going to be the case when he was in the cistern. Right? When he's sitting there, stripped of his robe, hearing his brothers, you know, have a nice leisurely meal and discuss his fate. He doesn't know that God is going to bring that about, about good through that. All he knows is that he's in a cistern. And then as he gets sold, he can't think to himself, someday I'll be in charge of Egypt. Like he has no idea that's coming. And years are going to pass of deep suffering for Joseph. It was on his bucket list. Right, bucket list. Be in charge. Of, right, this is going to happen someday. Yeah. I have faith, right? Instead, the faith is God somehow turns even this for good. And it's often not until much later in our lives looking back, can I get an amen, preach it, sister, that you look back at those moments of deep pain and hurt and you go, oh, God, you were so good there. I wouldn't want that moment again. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, but God, you showed up in the midst of that. And somehow you found some redeeming good 
and you started to tell a different story. You turned my story there in a way I could have never anticipated, and it's only 20 years looking back that I can start to see how faithful you have been. And sometimes it takes 20 years to get there. <laughs> yeah. So what we'd like you to do in the next few moments is consider a dysfunction in your family's an story. Event, yeah. An event, something maybe that somebody meant for evil, something that happened. And if you would be so kind, on the edge of the chairs, there's some pieces of paper and some pens. If you would take a piece of paper and pass it down your aisle and the writing utensil, um, we're going to spend a few moments just in a spiritual discipline. This biblical story is phenomenal, not because the events happened, but because it describes a truth that is so deep to the human experience that every single one of us can see us in this story. And so we'd like for you to take a few moments to consider your part of this story, the dysfunction, the event, the thing that happened in you, the through sin. you, to you, yeah. the sin. And we're going to give you a moment to write that down. I'll give it and, and what we want you to do is, don't worry, we're not going to read these. This is for you. But this is going to become a prayer. Either a praise report of saying, this is something that was deeply painful for me, but God used it for good. Or it will become the thing that you say, God, I'm still waiting for that 20-year looking back. I'm not there yet. I haven't seen how you've started to do that. It could be, it could be breaking up of a marriage. It could be the loss of a loved one. It could be anything. And, and this is just for you. But it's our prayer that God would take that deep ache and start to use it for good. And we just want to give you a tangible way of saying, I'm going to write this down and I'm going to give it to you, God. And if you want to drop it in a basket, we're going to burn those up later and make them go away. Or you want to take it home and wad it up and, and grab a match and just watch that disappear. That prayer go up to God and say, God, this is yours now. I don't want to be defined anymore by the fact um, that my brothers tried to kill me and throw me into slavery, right? I want to be defined instead by the fact that you're going to use it for good, that you are God who redeems, that you are the author of my story, and that you're going to use it for some good. So take a few moments and, um, and just take an opportunity to ask God to start to bring redemption and hope and healing and truth into that deep pain and that deep hurt. God, we just want to... Um, ask you, Lord, to intercede on our behalf with all these hurts and pains, Lord. That that which was done against us, the evil, the sin, the hurt, the pain, Jesus, we pray that you would turn that to a moment of redemption, just like you did on the cross. That incredible act of evil, meant for evil, God, as they nailed you on that cross, Jesus, you turned that for hope and redemption and new life. And because of that death, burial, and resurrection, because of what you did, we can now stand before you, Lord, and ask you to pour out your mercy and your grace and your love over these hurts and over these pains. Jesus, we give them to you and ask you, Lord, that you would start the turn of redemption, start the turn of hope, start to bring good out of even the deepest hurt and pain. Jesus, we trust you to do it in your name, and we give you glory and praise for it. Let your mercy come quickly, Lord, and if we must wait 20, 30, 40 years to look back to find the good, Jesus, we pray that you would give us comfort and patience 
and hope and peace and faith to endure the waiting. God, thank you for giving us Bible heroes who are deeply human. Thank you, Lord, for stripping them of um, their sparkliness in our wonderful Sunday school lessons, Lord. Thank you for instead giving us stories that are so human that they're our story too. And thank you, Lord, for showing us how you're at work in and through each one of us, in and through in between the lines, Lord. Even where you don't show up with the big booming voice and the incredible vision, you are at work at every turn, in between every line, in between the spaces, between all the words of our lives, Lord, you are telling a story, a bigger story than us, and we trust you for it and ask you to give us hope and peace and comfort in Jesus' name. May we go in peace and serve you with everything we have. Amen.